Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, let us now hear the inspired and inerrant word of God. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We, we thank you that it was your word in the hands of your Holy Spirit that brought us to life spiritually, that you caused us to be born again by the word of truth. And so we ask today that you would continue to bless the life-giving word that we might receive a fresh infusion of spiritual life today by the preaching of your word. We ask your blessing to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Belgic Confession is one of the primary Reformed confessions. It's one of the so-called uh, three forms of unity. It's a confession of faith written in the 16th century. And I want to read you one particular article from it. It's article number 19. Quote, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in chastening of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. Hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. End quote. Now I read you that quote of that confession of faith because I just wanted to zero in on one particular element. All of those elements that they mentioned are important, but one of them is church discipline. How do you know a true church from a false one? How do you know a good, solid church from a superficial one, from one that lacks obedience to the pure word of God? One of the ways you know that is whether church discipline is exercised or not. We, we are here now in Matthew 18, and in verses 15 through 20, the Lord Jesus brings to our attention the need for brotherly discipline. What do we do? When our brother sins, what do we do when our brother sins against us personally? How do we respond to that? How do we handle that particular situation? This is what we typically call church discipline. And so we want to think here in Matthew 18, 15 to 20 about church discipline. Now, this is probably not one of your favorite subjects, 
You say it's Christmas time. Pastor Nick, you're going to talk about church discipline at Christmas time? You better believe it. Yes, I most certainly am. You say, why would you do that? Because this is where we are. <laughs> we're here in Matthew 18, and we're taking up the next portion of it. And so my Christmas gift to you this year is the gift of church discipline. Let's cover this passage in four ways. Number one, we'll consider the disciplinary situation. What is the situation in which discipline is called for? Verse 15. Number two, we'll walk through the steps of the process that Jesus gives us for church discipline. That's in verses 15 through 17. Then number three, we'll talk about the authority of the church in the disciplinary process and act. It's in verses 18 and 19. And then fourth and finally, we'll talk about the presence of Christ in the exercise of church discipline, and that's in verse 20. Now, last time we were in the previous section, verses 10 to 14, what did we learn there? Jesus gave a command to his disciples. He told them not to despise one another, not to look down upon the lowly, humble, childlike fellow believer. Why? Why are we not to despise or look down upon our brethren, no matter how humble their circumstances are? Because, three reasons Jesus gave, because their angels always behold the face of their Father in heaven. They have angelic representation. In other words, would you want to despise someone who has an audience with the Almighty via the angels? I hope not. Number two, Jesus said his purpose was to come and seek and save that which was lost. How could we then despise one that Christ came to save? And then Jesus went on to tell the parable of what the shepherd does when one sheep goes missing, when one sheep strays from the fold. The shepherd goes, seeks out that sheep, and rescues that sheep. And then Jesus concluded in verse 14 by telling us that it is not the will of the Father that any one of God's little ones perish. The little ones are the disciples. And it is God's will that they all be saved and they all be reclaimed. Because of that, we must not despise. We must not look down upon one another. Now, our new passage here, verses 15 to 20, begins with the word moreover. At least here in the New King James, your translation may have and. But that signals to you that there's a connection between what Jesus has just finished saying and what he is now saying or going to say in verses 15 through 20. And that is really important. Because so many times we drop into a passage of Scripture and we don't think about the context of it. We don't think about what came before and what comes after. And so we want to make sure that we do that. And we notice all these connections that are present in the text so that we interpret and apply what Jesus says here rightly. Now, why would that be important? Let me give you one example why this is important. Drop down to verse 20. <clears throat> In verse 20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, if I had a nickel for every time someone quoted that passage of Scripture to me as a reason for why they need not be a part of the church, I'd have a lot of nickels. What, why do people get away with using that text, verse 20, to say, I don't need to go to church. 
I don't need to be a member of a church. I don't need to be a part of the body of Christ. I can be at home and read the Bible with my wife. I can get together with my neighbor and talk about God on Sunday morning. I don't need to be at your church gatherings. Well, one of the reasons why people get away with that is they take that verse and they pull it and rip it out of its context. Jesus is obviously not saying, all you need is another person or two, don't go to church. (laughs) You knew that already, didn't you? Well, what helps us here is to see the context and the connection. And the very first word of verse 15 helps us do that. Moreover, Jesus says, Jesus is now continuing what he has been talking about. So let's connect it. What is Jesus talking, talked about in verses 10 to 14? He talked about straying sheep, straying little ones. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 90 and nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. What's he talking about? He's talking about the little ones going astray, the people of God going astray. And what does Jesus do? Jesus is the good shepherd. He goes and finds them. Or verse 14, even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is contrary to God's will obviously, for any of his people to perish and be lost, for them to remain in that state of lostness like the lost sheep. And then comes verse 15. Moreover, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you see the connection? The connection would be Jesus the good shepherd seeks out those who stray Because it's not the Father's will that they be lost. And now immediately, right after that, Jesus talks about a brother who is in sin. And what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to him. You're supposed to tell him his fault. You're supposed to reprove him. Why? To gain your brother. What's happening here is you are seeking to imitate the good shepherd and go reclaim the one who has strayed. Okay, so hopefully you see the connection there. All right, let's begin our consideration of the passage itself by talking about the situation which calls for, excuse me, discipline. What is it that requires this process that Jesus outlines here in this passage of scripture and who is to be the subject of it? Let's begin with the subject. Who is in view here? Verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you. Who are we talking about? We're talking about a believer, right? We're talking about someone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ and belong to Christ, someone who is a professing member of the church. Now, of course, this applies to sisters as well. You know, the language of brotherhood doesn't exclude ladies. So this would be a brother or sister, a fellow Christian who has sinned. And of course, this goes quite well with what we have seen Jesus talking about. Jesus is very concerned, obviously, about his people going astray. And so, if your brother, your professing fellow Christian, sins, then you need to go to him. This is why we take this text to be about discipline within the church rather than outside of it. This text is not about how to deal with unbelievers who sin against you. 
This text is about how to deal with those who are professing Christians, those who are considered brethren who sin. It would make no, no sense. For example, if you drop down to verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Wouldn't make any sense if I came to you today and during announcement time told you that an unbeliever sinned against me and I wanted you to do something about it. I wanted us to follow the process of church discipline. You'd say, Pastor, they're not a part of the church. They're not a brother. We need to evangelize them. We need to share the gospel with them. Okay, so this text is about how we deal with one another. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, which also deals with church discipline, gives us this distinction as well, this distinction that we need to make between believers and unbelievers, between those who belong to the church and those who do not. Listen to what Paul says. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a what? A brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. You see the distinction Paul's making there? He's saying that God is responsible for the judgment of those outside the church, those in the world, those who are unbelievers. But within the church, we must make judgments based upon those who profess Christ and profess to be a part of the church. So this is for the church. This is church discipline, discipline within the body. Number two, what situation would call for church discipline? Verse 15 again. Moreover, if your brother sins against you. That is the issue. The issue is sin. Now, there is a textual question here that I'm not going to get into in any great detail, but your translation may say, if your brother sins, or the New King James, as I have it here, has against you. There's a textual question there about whether against you is original or not, but I will take it to be so. Nevertheless, both situations, I believe, call for the same response and the same process, whether it is a direct sin against me or a sin that I come to find out uh, that you are engaged in or you have committed. In both cases, we're going to go to our brother and we're going to seek to reprove our brother or our sister about their sin, whether that sin is directly against us or not. Now, why is it important to recognize that we're dealing here with sin? It is because we have to make sure that we're actually confronting our brethren about sin rather than opinions, preferences, and debatable matters. And we do have those things in the church. You have opinions about things. I have opinions about things. For example, you may like a certain Bible translation more than another one. I am not going to confront you over your choice of Bible translation, provided it's not a heretical one, 
which I don't think anybody here would, would use one like that. But at any rate, we're not going to have a sit-down confrontation over that sort of thing, nor are we going to have a sit-down confrontation or a meeting, a private meeting even, over eschatology, as important as eschatology is. You know what eschatology is? Our beliefs about the end times. You know, does Jesus come back here or does he come back here? Who's the Antichrist? Oh, that sort of thing, right? I'm not going to confront you over that. I'm not going to reprove you. We may have a conversation, and I may challenge you to think about certain biblical texts, but those things are debatable matters, and many things are matters of opinion and preference, and we have to learn to distinguish between them. Okay, We have to learn to distinguish between something that is clearly a sin and something that <clears throat> is not. What we are dealing with here is when our brother sins against us. All right, so there's the situation. Number two, let's begin to think about the steps that Jesus calls upon us to follow here. Jesus gives us a three-step process, and depending upon the outcome of each one of these steps, uh, we then do this or that, depending upon how it goes. But what we have here in verses 15 through 17 is a procedure, is a, a method that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us, the method, the process for us to follow when our brother is in sin in some way. Now, there are many people today, many professing Christians and many churchgoers who have no clue about church discipline. Never heard of it, they would say. Or... They have a hostile reaction to it. Might say, church discipline? What are you talking about? That's mean. You must be some of those mean and nasty Christians who do that church discipline thing. And for them, for many people, that's the end of the matter. Church discipline is mean and it's unchristian. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problems are um, legion. But let's just start with the first one. Who's talking here? Who's speaking here? This is the Lord Jesus Christ, love incarnate. So you cannot say church discipline by its very nature is unkind, is mean-spirited, and is unchristian. The person who says that does not know their Bible, has apparently skipped this past, this passage. Apparently, our daily bread didn't cover it. And so they just kept right on going. And they think, well, that's unchristian to do that. No, this comes from Jesus. This is what we find in the Word of God. It is not Pastor Nick telling you today we need to faithfully follow this passage of Scripture because Nick just has a hang-up. Nick just has this thing about church and what people ought to do and ought not to do. No, this comes from Jesus. So if you can... Forget about Pastor Nick in one sense today and come face to face with the Lord Jesus. This is his teaching. This is given by him. Number two, before we get to this first step, this is a process. I use the word process on purpose. This is obviously a process that Jesus gives us that you do this first, and then depending upon how that goes, then you do this second, and then depending upon how that goes, you do this third. Okay, so there's a procedure that is to be followed as opposed to 
a knee-jerk reaction to a situation in the church. Now, there are many churches who have given a bad name to church discipline because that's exactly what they did. They had a knee-jerk reaction to sin, the sin of a member of the church, the sin of their brother. So something happened, you know, they're embarrassed, they're, you know, disgusted by what a particular person has done, and they proceed immediately to step number three. Let's kick them out. Let's get rid of them. Because, why? Because they're embarrassed, or they're upset, or they're mad at the person, or what have you. We must not do things in that way. We must not knee-jerk in response to each other's sin. We must follow the process. Why? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. It's because of what Jesus gives us here in this passage of Scripture. We must be methodical. We must follow the process of discipline. Let's begin here now this process with the first step. What is the first step in the process? It is a private one-on-one meeting with the offender. Again, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is the initial step. It needs to be a one-on-one with the person who has sinned against you or with the person that you have come to find out is in sin in some way. And the first word I want you to notice here in this initial step is the word go. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Who is Jesus talking to? He's not talking to the offending brother. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the disciple who has been sinned against or the disciple who has found out about the brother's sin. Where does that put the onus? Where does that put the initiative? It puts it with the disciple, the offended, rather than the offender. Now, why would that be important? It would be important because we don't want to do that. Right? I mean, what would your reaction be to someone telling you after someone has lied, lied about you, let's say, and they, they hurt your reputation, and you're mad and you're venting and you're fuming about it, right? And someone says to you, you need to go to them. What might someone say to that? What might the average churchgoer in America say to such a thing? Well, they might say, if they want to apologize, they know where I am. You know where I, they know how to get me. They know how to locate me. They're the one who did wrong. They're the one who sinned. Why should I be the one to take the initiative? Why should I have to go and talk to them about their sin? Why does Jesus not put the burden of responsibility on the person who has sinned here? Well, this is how we would typically react to this sort of thing. I mean, this is how we usually do things, right? When you get in a fight with your wife, for example, what do you usually do? Do you usually initiate the reconciliation? Or do you stew a little bit, or maybe a lot bit, and say in your mind, I'll wait till she comes to me. 
I'll wait till she comes to apologize and make things right. And if she doesn't, oh well. Well, we use that same mindset and we bring it inside the church, right? And it's disastrous. And so what Jesus says is, if your brother sins against you, you go. You initiate the reconciliation. That puts the burden on our shoulders. Why would we do such a thing? We would do such a thing because we're followers of the Lord Jesus. We're to obey him and we're to imitate him as the good shepherd. Remember the context here. What does the good shepherd do? When that one sheep goes astray, does the good shepherd say, well, serves him right. I told him not to do that. I talked to that sheep over and over again and told him not to wander away. And there they've gone astray. Serves him right. No, Jesus doesn't do that. The good shepherd goes out and seeks out the sheep. And we're supposed to do the same. We're supposed to seek out our brother. Take the initiative in order to see reconciliation take place between that person and God and between that person and us. This requires that we deal personally with each other. Jesus says again, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, private meeting, in which you are responsible to take the initiative. This means you must take the responsibility to do it rather than passing it off to the person or to someone else. It is your responsibility. Now, I know that's hard. I know it's difficult to do, but it is nevertheless our responsibility to initiate reconciliation with those who have sinned against us. The next word I want you to notice, or phrase really, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Let's focus on that phrase for a moment. Tell him his fault is the translation of elegco. And it means to reprove, to convict. So what you are doing when you go to your brother who has sinned against you or who has sinned in some way is you are going to reprove them. You are going to convict them of their sin, show them their sin, and seek to call them to repentance from that sin. In Luke 17, Jesus uses the word rebuke. Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So what are we doing here in step number one? We are going to our brother because they have sinned, and we are seeking to reprove him. We are seeking to rebuke our brother. Now, if I may give you some counsel for things you should do prior to going to your brother to reprove him or your sister to rebuke her. Number one, you probably, if you're unsure, need to ask questions rather than make assertions and accusations. It's possible that you've misunderstood the situation, that you have looked at it from afar and you think there's sin going on, but you do need to nail it down, right? Because we have to make sure we're dealing with sin. And so it's helpful, I think, to ask some questions rather than jumping to 
a conclusion. This is one of the things I learned in working at American Express. Uh, many times I would come into a project and think I see the situation clearly and would begin making assertions on conference calls and then I would find out I was wrong. <laughs> Don't you love that? You find out you're wrong and now you got to backtrack a little bit, okay? And what would have helped were, would have been to ask some questions first. What about this? What about that? Can you help me understand this particular situation or what have you? Okay, so that's number one. Number two, I would recommend that you pray. Recommend that you pray and ask God to work in the heart of the person who has offended you by sinning against you and to ask God to help you to go to them with the right spirit, with the right attitude, and with the right goal, okay? Because we could do this in the wrong way. We could follow the steps and our heart not be in the right place because we're angry at them or we just want to accuse them or we want to take revenge against them in some way. And so we want to make sure that we do it prayerfully. And you should know that many, many times, most of the time, if I come to talk to you about something, I have prayed about it. I have not done it in a knee-jerk fashion. I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. I've been asking God, God, show me where I'm wrong. If I'm wrong here, please show me. Please help me to understand so that I don't offend my brother unnecessarily. And I think you ought to do the same. Now, on the flip side of this, it's also important that we respond well to such questioning. What if you're the one who sinned? and a brother or a sister is coming to you, how should you respond to them coming to you? Well, I'll tell you how most people respond to it, and I'll throw myself in here as well. <laughs> because I don't always do it right. It usually happens with Dina. <clears throat> Dina will often come to me about something, and, and I'll get defensive about it. You ever get defensive? Well, and you start to, you know, throw the butts around and yeah, but what about? And you're, you're angry and you're upset about the situation. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I have. And there have been times when she's had to preface her statement to me. Now, please don't get mad. <laughs> now, there's a problem when somebody's got to say that to you. Nine times out of ten, and it's not with the person who's coming to you to question you or challenge you or what have you. It's with you. What is it that would cause us to be defensive if your brother or sister comes to you and they come in the right spirit? And even if they don't come in the right spirit, but they're right. It's true what they're saying. How should you respond to that? You should humble yourself and listen without being defensive and angry and trying to put it back on them and make accusations against them. We need to learn how to respond well to questions, to challenges. And to be honest with you, we don't. We don't. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Nick? Because I've had to do it from time to time. And usually people get mad. People get upset at even being asked questions. What are you insinuating? What are you implying? Well, if nobody can ever come to you and talk about anything, that's bad, brethren. 
because we all believe in the doctrine of total depravity, right? Well, we should. That we're all sinful and we all sin. And so we all say amen to that. We nod in approval and say, yes, 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 I believe that. And then somebody comes to talk to you about a potential sin, and now suddenly we're sinless. <laughs> now suddenly, no, no, you shouldn't be talking to me. You have no right to speak to me about any kind of sin. Brethren, it ought not to be that way. I put myself right there with you. I do that sometimes too. And we need to ask God's forgiveness and humble our hearts and welcome our brethren. Say, if you see a problem in my life, if you see a sin in my life, you are welcome to come to me. You are welcome to come to me and talk about it. And I will consider prayerfully and humbly what you have to say. Now, we don't have much time. So maybe one more thing here, and then we'll pick this up this afternoon. There are things standing in the way of our obedience to this text. The primary one is pride, the sin of pride in our heart. But Jesus has told us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why don't we do it? And let's be honest. <laughs> Can we be honest with ourselves? We don't want to do it, and many times we don't do it. And we excuse ourselves. And so we need to think about reasons why we don't do it to help us toward obedience to this passage of Scripture. All right, so let's think about some. Number one, how many of you like unpleasant experiences? <laughs> Nobody. How many of you like unpleasant experiences at church. Nobody, right? Cue the crickets. What do most people want out of church? Ah, you're getting down to the rub here, Pastor Nick. Yeah, I'm going to try to. What do most people want? They want a pleasant experience, right? Want to come in the door, hey, how are you? So good to see you. Oh, wonderful. And you have a, a real brief conversation. Bang, that's it. And as long as that happens with everybody, man, everything's hunky-dory. That's Greek for everything went fine today. Everything's good. And we think, man, we had a good day at church. Because what is it? What's at the root of that? Pleasant experiences. But what if... We could have a ton of pleasant experiences and we actually were unfaithful to Jesus and his word because we valued that over obedience. Jesus says, do this. I don't want to do that. Why? Because it will not be what? Pleasant. And you... If you're going to obey this passage of Scripture, if we're going to obey this passage of Scripture as a church, I can guarantee you that many, many times it will not be pleasant. You will not have a nice conversation that you come away from feeling really good about. But did you know that obedience sometimes feels bad? You can feel terrible, yet have done what God says and have pleased Him in how you have 
conducted yourself. So, I ask you, brethren, what do you care more about? Pleasant experiences in the body of Christ, or do you really love your brother? Do you love him or her enough to go to them and reprove them for their sin? That's really the bottom line. The bottom line is not that we love each other too much, but that we don't love each other enough. If I see a sin in your life or if you sin against me and I ignore it, I overlook it, even though it's a genuine sin that needs to be dealt with, I have now sinned against you. In failing to obey Jesus and come to you and care enough about you to seek your repentance, to seek that you would be reconciled to God in this particular area and reconciled to your brethren. What is it that we want out of church? Many people, they want to come and they want to listen to a message and that's about it. And they think, sum total of my duty. But that's wrong. Why is that wrong? Because the church is the place where this happens. And if it's not happening, are we really the church? Can we claim to be the body of Christ and not function in the way that Jesus has commanded? So my exhortation to you, brethren, is if you don't like this or you're honest with yourself and you don't want to do it or you look back over your life and your time in the church and you realize I haven't done it on multiple occasions, then the place to start here is with repentance, is to say, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me for not following your word and for not loving your people enough to confront them to reprove them when they need it. You don't know how many times I've done that. How many times I've had to go to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I should have said this to them. I should have confronted them much earlier. I should have sought them out with my concerns, but instead I failed to do that. What about you? Are you ready and willing to obey this passage of scripture as an individual? And as a member of the body of Christ, may God give us the grace to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this teaching. We, we do find this difficult to do so many times. We ask your forgiveness personally for where we have failed to do it, where we've been disobedient. And we ask your forgiveness as a church. We ask for your mercy for where we as a church have failed to be the church and engage in the loving process of discipline for one another. We ask that you would help us to do it, help us to be obedient and faithful in these things in the days ahead. We thank you for this meal and this time that we have together. We ask your blessings on it. We thank you, Lord, for all those who have prepared the food and worked hard to provide all these things, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave today, may grace be with you. Amen.